Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Harvest. I used Harvest to track time, track subcontractors' time, and invoice clients. Their time tracking is really simple and easy to use. Invoicing includes a pay now function by credit card and PayPal, and you can sign up at getharvest.com. Use the code RF to get 50% off your first month. Everybody and welcome to episode 28 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a guest, and that is Sammy Larby. Did I say that right? You sure did. Hello. All right. Well, you're new to the show. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, well, I've been a programmer since um, t- teenage years, so about 15 years now. Um, got into Ruby around 2005, I, or not, sorry, 2007, I think. Um, and I recently started freelancing. Well, I say recently, but it's been about a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not famous for anything that I know of. <laughs> I see. So um, you've been talking a lot to Evan Light, who is also regular on the show, and he said that you were pretty new to freelancing, and so we thought we would talk to you about, um, you know, what you wish you knew when you started freelancing. So, well, that sounds good because I think there's probably still a lot I wish I knew. Right. Um, I'm a little curious. What are some of the hard lessons you've learned uh, since you started? Oh wow. Um, <clears throat> I think one I'm still working on is um, like, uh, so I work from home and I'm trying to fight the urge to work all the time, even when I'm off, you know, so if a client sends an email and I get an alert on my phone or something. Um, and it's say it's, you know, seven o'clock at night, I have the urge to go upstairs and take care of it right, right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that makes sense. So I'm, I, you know, I guess I need, I need to learn to relax a little more. Yeah. How, how do you guys feel about it? Jeff and Eric about, about stuff like that, setting those boundaries. Um, I kind of have office hours. Like my clients know I'm here from basically nine to five Pacific time. Uh, if it's like an emergency, like I say, you know, email me, I might check it. I usually, well, I almost always won't respond unless it's like a server outage or something critical. Um, but you know, basically nights and weekends are my personal time and all my clients kind of know that I have like this boundary and, you know, I'm available if it's something really big, but if it's just like a day-to-day thing or, Hey, we just found this bug in testing, it's typically I don't get on it till like the next work day. Right. What about you, Jeff? Uh, I think I have the same problem Sammy does setting boundaries. I'm getting better at it mostly because, uh, well, I guess my clients are just better now than they were in the beginning. But it's really hard for me to shut off at some point. It has, like I said, I'm getting better at it. But it's really hard to shut off and not, not when I keep working and, I don't know. It's just always been a problem. And the issue you get, I mean, so Eric has office hours and the clients understand he has office hours. When you... When you answer an email at eight at night or nine at night, then you sort of set an expectation to the client that you're going to be available at that time, and that, that ends up being hard to overcome. I think if you do that, so yeah, it reinforces the behavior that you're you're around 24 hours a day. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I I haven't explicitly told my clients that I have office hours. However, um, I do have to say that in general, when I'm done working, I'm not anywhere near my computer. And if I'm checking, if I'm checking it at an odd hour, so anytime basically after about six in the evening, um, then yeah, generally I'll, if I do reply, I'll basically say something to the effect of, hey, I sat down to look at emails for a few minutes and noticed that you emailed, here's what's going on. And so, it, you know, hopefully I'm not setting the expectation that I'm there all the time at that time and that I'm just saying, hey, look, I, 
I sat down and, you know, did a little bit of work and, you know, I'm replying to an email because I'm at my computer for some reason. But I, I like Eric's approach. I, I think I should be letting my clients know, hey, this is when you can expect me to be here. And anything outside of that is essentially bonus, but don't count on anything. Yeah, I, I got you. So that, I mean, and that makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah, I think uh, so too. You know, are, set, are you, set, setting the expectations, I think, I mean, that's like a big deal for all kinds of communication or just, you know, communicating with people is to set expectations. Right. right. Are there any other things that have kind of come up that you didn't quite understand when you got started that you're kind of learning now? Yeah. So like one of my goals is I, I really don't want to work too much because I'm I'm also trying to build a, more of a product business. And so I, I my, my real goal was like, say, work 20 hours a week on client work and then I'll you know have some time to work on this, the stuff for my personal or for, you know, for myself. And, you know, given that goal, I was kind of shocked that all the business admin stuff that you end up doing, um, you know, it, it really eats away at, at a lot of the, that time that I thought I was going to have left over. So how right. big of a workload do you try to carry, you know, if, if you're given that your goal is not to work, say, more than 20, 25 hours a week? Um, but I do because I have products and stuff, but I, always, I try to do about four and a half hours a day of like productive work. And so that's what is like 22 something a week. And pretty much the rest of my time is going to be filled with administration. And those 22 hours are like, that's either product and or client. And so, you know, if a client needs 20 hours of work, I can't work on products at the same week. And if a client needs like 10 hours of work that week, I can do 10 hours on products. And I mean, I'm, I've been doing product stuff for I guess a year maybe two years now and I'm still struggling to find the right balance because it's just like you're running two startup businesses at once you know the it seems like it might be easy to you know put a couple hours in here or there but they're completely different businesses and they they react and they move differently and so you can't really take lessons from one and adapt to the other without a lot of work. So how do you explain to clients, you know, a lot of people come and say, oh, I want 40 hours a week. And, and, and <laughs> you're really established and you're telling me that like 22 hours is a full schedule. So how do you how do you explain that to people? I mean, most people or most of my clients know, like if someone's working a 40 hour week, maybe half their time if they're lucky is actual productive time and so they kind of come into it like we're buying your productive time at your rate we're not buying your unproductive time and so my clients have been pretty good about that and they they know that you know freelancers we have hours where we're amazingly productive and so that's the time where they pay the high rates and then the other time like in meetings or emails stuff like that that's kind of they don't like paying for that and so we kind of limit that time as much as possible you know, and I guess if you have a client that's like demanding 40 hours a week of freelance stuff, I mean, you kind of got to educate the client and tell them like, look, sit behind one of your employees for a week and see how much actually work they get done. You know, they're not going to get 40 hours of real work done. Yeah, well, right. luckily, I, you know, everybody I've worked with so far has been, you know, understanding that that I have goals outside of just working full time for uh, for someone else. So I haven't run into it with a customer. I've mostly run into it with potential customers. Yeah, one thing that I've run into with with some of this is that uh, they trust me as a content expert. And that means that they not only trust me to do the work and do the right thing, but they also trust me to 
bring other people in if I have to, to get that work done. And so a lot of times I'll, I'll uh, go at it from the approach of, well, you know, I don't have 40 hours a week that I can spend, you know, billing you on this stuff. And so if you're okay with it, I have, I have a couple of guys that I call on for jobs like this. And so I can work 10 or 20 or 15 or however much I feel like I can work for them. And uh, then I'll, I'll have my, my guys work the other, you know, 20 or 25 hours. And in a lot of cases, that works out all right. I haven't, it, it seems like some clients, though, they're not so much concerned about uh, how many hours per week you work as much as, you know, whether or not you can deliver on specific deadlines. So it really depends on the client as far as, you know, what the expectation is and whether or not you can talk your way around that. I also have to point out that I'm not a terrific example of this because I just took a contract. That's why I'm in Tennessee, um, where I'm going to be working essentially 40 hours a week for this client. And uh, I'll have to do all of, all of the other things, you know, outside of that 40 hours. And that's going to be kind of rough. But at the same time, you know, I really did feel like it, it's kind of getting me where I wanted to go. So, you know, you, you, you have to weigh that in as well. Right. And the difference between I think most clients that are looking for 40 hours a week or some number of hours a week are probably looking for a contractor, somebody to be available to them to do some amount of work as opposed to a consultant where they just want to get something done. Right. Yeah. It's milestones versus miscellaneous. Uh, programming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I guess, I guess for, for the, the ones that come straight out and say they want 40 hours a week, you know, given my goals that that's probably just not a customer that I should target. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, there's a lot of ways to look at it. I mean, you, you could look at, <clears throat> so your goal was uh, 20, 25 hours a week uh, and then some amount of time above and beyond that to work on your products. And so Eric has his way, and I I work on some products, and Chuck has a bunch of uh, podcasts and other things in the works. So, I mean, we're all in a similar situation, but you can either look at it as number of hours uh, that you want to make billable or a, a revenue goal that you want to make. And so, I mean, the classic thing there is just charge more and bill less. Uh, charge more money per hour, and you can work less hours, or... If there's some, like Chuck took this uh, contract for however many months it is, I'm doing something similar with a, on a contract basis and they want 30, 40 hours a week of my time. And at some point I'll cut them off, but I mean, you can front load a bunch of this time and then maybe take a month or two off and work on something. Eric's got another interesting approach where he treats his own stuff as a client. And he'll budget time in for his stuff as he would another client. But there are a bunch of ways. I think I remember that episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can, like, use like a a full-time kind of 30, 40-hour client and use that to kind of bankroll some cash that, like Jeff said, in later months you can just, when the client's done, you can go and be full-time on products and kind of toggle between the two. You know, or you can, you know, spike on a client, do 40 hours, 50 hours a week, you know, for say three or four weeks and then slowly reduce it once, you know, once they launch or like they hit a major milestone and then get it down to like, you know, 10, 20 hours a week, whatever you want. You know, it's, but you have to be careful because I, I screwed this up when I got started is like, I thought I needed a whole bunch of time and I kept booking myself and I was doing, I think I got up to like 30, 35, some weeks were above 40 a billable time and it killed me like I basically woke up started doing client work 
around six or seven, turned the computer off, went downstairs, ate dinner, and just became a zombie. And that's the that was my life. Like I had nothing else I was able to do. And it took me months to recover from that. So you also have to look at the long term. Like if you spike on something, you might not be able to have the energy to get into a product or to keep a product going for a while. Yeah, my my thing with the with the job that I just took is that. Uh, I've, I've really been wanting to get some money saved up for an emergency fund and get um, get all of my debt paid off except for my houses. If you're familiar with Dave Ramsey, I'm kind of, you know, working along the lines that he outlined. So for me, it, it really is getting me where I want to go. And I feel like once I have all that debt paid off and I have money in the bank um, that I can live on for a few months, then I have, the, you know, I have a little bit more independence. I'm, I'm not as desperate for work. Um, and, and I feel like I get some freedom out of that to, you know, if I need some time to go pursue something that isn't, you know, immediately billable, then I can do that. And, and usually those are products, but you know, you kind of get the idea that that's kind of what I'm thinking is that it'll get me far enough ahead to where I can basically buy my way out of some of the, the, the debt and stuff that I'm in. So, well, that, that's a good goal. So that, that kind of reminds me of a thing I realized um, the other day was if, if you're like, I'm the kind of person who I really, for whatever reason, don't like talking about money. So I, mm-hmm. I you know, like negotiate. I don't think you're and, unique. And, and all of that. And, uh, but one thing I've noticed is at least when you are in a position, when you've got a full schedule, it's like, it, it becomes so much easier to tell people, um, oh yeah, my rate's $25 an hour higher than it was last week or whatever, be- because you're not worried about, um, you know, them saying no, if they say yes, then wow, awesome. But if they say no, oh, well, no problem. Somebody else will come along in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's funny because, um, when I got started, I thought, oh, well, you know, how do I know how much to charge? And, you know, you, you think you, when you get started that there's this magic number out there, you know, and, and so if you're billing um, exactly $127.58 that, you know, the right client will accept and the wrong client won't and you'll be a happy person and, you know, angels will sing. And that's re- it's really funny because it's so not the case. I mean, you know, there are so many other intangibles that you get from the clients. You know, some of them are really easy to work with. You know, they're just the right amount of hands-on or hands-off um, and all of these other things that, you know, you may be able to negotiate a higher or lower rate and be happy with the the, uh, the gig. And other people, you know, it's like, look, you know, they're they're horrible people. They're, they don't treat you well. And even if you were billing three times what you would bill the other guy, you're still not happy on the project and it's not worth doing. And so, you you, you know, you seem to somehow conflate money with happiness or money with success. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you said. Uh, I guess to go back to the point with having and that you made with having an emergency fund and some money in that bank, I mean, it lets you be pickier and more confident and work less if you want to. And I guess the other attitude to follow on with what you just said about money and happiness being related. I mean, you get to a point, I, I've felt some, at least one client felt very entitled. They were paying me a, a lot of money in their mind. And then, so they thought I was at their beck and call because they were paying this so much money as opposed to mm-hmm. paying just on the value and rewarding me for the value I was providing, whatever they thought, uh, princely sum or whatever you want to say. And they... 
I should be at their beck and call and hours of the night and do whatever they wanted. So yeah, I mean, it's pricing is an ongoing exploration. Right. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, like I said, once, it varies from client to client. Anyway, go ahead, Eric. Sorry. That's what I was gonna say. Like, I mean, once you kind of have that emergency fund set up, too, it's you have the freedom. Like I've had, I was completely booked one month, and I had a uh, a client come to me who wanted something, and. Pretty much, I was the only person they could find that could deliver because I've written eighty percent of the exact same thing they needed, and they needed it like yesterday. And so we negotiated, and even though I was like fully booked, I actually made exceptions for them and worked nights and I think like a Saturday or whatever to get it out. But in return, they also paid twice my normal rate, you know, to have the extra time to go, you know, overtime, all that stuff. But if I, you know, if I didn't have an emergency fund or if I wasn't able to kind of watch my schedule that I wouldn't have been able to do that or would have just been a normal project and put in with something else. So, I mean, what you're doing, Chuck, is kind of a good thing. Like, get that emergency fund built up, you know, make sure you have some flexibility with that. And if that means you have to do a 40 hour a week project, like, that might be what you need to do at this stage. Yeah. Well, the other nice thing about that is that it's, it's only for a few months. So it's not this long term thing where I'm going to be pushing and, you know, sort of killing myself for, you know, much longer than I absolutely have to in order to get where I need to be. So, you know, you can weigh that into and just make sure that it's, it's, taking you where you want to go and if it if it's not and it's going to be too much sacrifice then don't do it and then to kind of get back to sammy's thing about it like if a client's asking for 40 hours a week one thing you can try to do is to see are they wanting 40 hours of you or are do they just have they looked at their schedule and figured the only way they can meet a milestone is to get 40 hours of development time and so that comes back to where maybe you can bring in a subcontractor, maybe even tell the client, hey, I can give you 20, and I know this other guy, he can give you 20. That will get you enough development time, and you should be able to hit your milestone. And I, I want to just add on to that, too, that uh, so when we're talking about subcontractors in that sense, you know, where you're filling more time or providing, you know, more talent, subcontractor doesn't necessarily mean less skilled than you. In a lot of cases, it just means that they can do some work that you don't have the capacity to take on. Yeah, or the availability. Right. So you can be a new a new freelancer and still be subcontracting work. Well, that was going to be another one of my questions is, you know, because when you're first starting out, subcontracting, I think, is I mean, it's a good way to find work unless you already have, uh, you know, a network of potential clients and unless you or, you know, if you're going to knock on doors or whatever. Um, but one of the problems I had is how do I determine what's a fair subcontracting rate? E- either way, if, if I'm going to take it, you know, what, what's fair, um, you know, given that the other, whoever I'm subbing for has found the work and then same, same thing for me, if I wanted to sub out to somebody, do I just say, well, you can take my full hourly rate or should I, you know, try to keep some profit for myself? You should, if you're taking on... So to answer the last question you had, if you're taking on the management responsibility for the sub, you should never pass through the rate. I mean, you should you should keep some of the rate to manage that. Mm-hmm. Oh, so so I wouldn't be charging whatever time I spent managing. No, that's that's exactly you the opposite can. of what he's saying. So what he's saying is is that. If, let's say that you take a job for $100 an hour mm-hmm. um, and you're, you have a subcontractor that's going to be working under you. You shouldn't be paying your subcontractor $100 an hour because you're going to be spending time managing expectations with the client. 
you're going to be setting up infrastructure for the subcontractor to use. You know, all, all of those different things fall, fall into time that you're going to spend, and you need to be able to recoup that time. So you should be taking a reasonable percentage in order to cover your time for that work. So, I mean, why not just, um, especially if the, the customer knows that I'm subbing out some of the work, why not just charge them, um, uh, you know, more hours based on however many hours I spent doing that management? Well, it depends on... Makes sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And it depends on this... The arrangement and the agreement you have with the customer. So if the customer knows that you're going to be uh, the lead, whatever, for this project, and you're going to bring in some other guys to do that, and however they've decided to structure that rate uh, is how you can build them. So if if you're just going to go out and find people for them to assign tasks to you, then there's very little management for you and very little oversight that you have to do. And so the cost for you doing that work is going to be much less. Uh, but if you're going to be responsible for uh, all the quality control and training and answering any questions that you could before involving the client, then you can bill more for that. But it depends on how you set up an arrangement with your customer and how much you can bill. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's so, a lot of options for subcontracting. Like, I, I can think of, I think, three or four different arrangements that I've had with one client alone. And I mean, it's, it all comes back to what Jeff said. It's like what the relationship is, what the contract is, who's taking on the risk, who's taking on the responsibilities. Right. And, and I've, if I were organizing a team of like four or five people and they came to me knowing that I was going to organize a team, then for me, you know, it's understandable that you're going to need somebody doing project management. And so there would be a rate for project management. It might be the same as the development rate. It might not be. But then any time that I spend doing project management stuff gets billed to the client. But I have a few where it's just like me and one subcontractor. And so, I mean, I'm doing like a minimal amount of subcontracting. And so typically what I've wound up doing is I've, I've negotiated a rate with the client and then I've negotiated another rate with the subcontractor. And um, so basically I'm taking a certain percentage of the different, you know, I'm taking the difference is basically what I'm doing to make up for any time that I have to spend, you know, bridging the gap or, or things like that. And, and sometimes I make, make my rate back on my time and sometimes I don't. So it just depends on, you know, how, how well I was able to um, get a feel for, you know, what that was going to take. But um, yeah, so as far as being the subcontractor and negotiating the rate, um, a lot of times I'll actually just ask the primary contractor what the project rate is, you know, and just explain to him, I understand you're going to need to take a percentage of this in order to make it work. Um, and sometimes they'll tell you and sometimes they won't. Um, if they don't tell you, then, um, you know, you just basically want to just set a rate that you think is reasonable. Um, you know, so take your normal rate and then, you know, take a certain percentage off. And, and, and that just depends really on, you know, your feel for the project and what you think is fair for them to get for having found the work and doing the project management aspects of it. Um, I, I had one friend that I talked to that when he went, first went freelance, I, I talked to him about subcontracting for me. And, and uh, so we were talking and before we even really discussed any projects, he just looked at me straight up and said, uh, my subcontracting rate is $100 an hour. And so then I had to look at the rate that I negotiated with those clients and decide if the margin was enough to make it worth bringing them on. And uh, in other cases, you know, people are willing to negotiate the rate based on either the project rate or they're, you know, they may be talented, but, you know, they're not so interested in, 
in making a, a large rate, you know, they just want a little bit of extra work to tide them over and so they'll take a lower rate. So it really just depends on um, where you're at and, and what you want. And I mean, in other ways, oh, not even to put a margin on it, like I've seen where the contractor basically passes through the subcontractor's rate an hour, so say 10 hours at $100 an hour, and then the contractor, any management time that they do of the subcontractor gets billed at the project management rate. And so there's no actual margin on the time the contractor right. puts in, or the subcontractor, I mean, but it's just the, here's the management part. And that's that's nice because it's pretty hands-off. And if you transition to like, okay, it's just the subcontractor is going to work directly with the client, it's pretty easy to just hand that off when the project you know needs less work or doesn't need as much management overhead too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and any and all of those work, it just depends on how the primary contractor wants to structure things and what makes the most sense so that everybody gets what they want out of the project. So then when you when you're in the position to hire a subcontractor, um, are you I, I'm looking at it like this. If, if a customer comes to me and and they want me because they know I'm really awesome and then I hand the work to somebody else. Yeah. How do I justify? And maybe that person's not as good as, as I am or wouldn't wouldn't finish it as quickly as I am or something like that. Do you would you like give a discount or would you just charge your hourly rate? I've given them a discount before. I mean, ultimately, and, and we've talked about this on the show before, but ultimately you want them to feel like they're getting their money's worth or their value out of the money that they're spending. And so, um, yeah, I, I tend to try and adjust based on the skill level or whatever. And the, the flip side of that is that you build them at your rate, but you're responsible for all the quality control and training right. and catching errors and whatever else you have to do to make sure that the sub- oh that's yeah go ahead sorry i was just saying that that's that's a good idea i mean it's, good- it should be obvious but i mean if you're gonna pass somebody through if you're gonna pass on somebody else's work as your own and build a client for that then one you have to make it as good as any code you submit because i mean you're putting your seal of approval on this person and the work they're doing and the worst thing yeah the worst thing that will ever happen well one, not the worst thing that will ever happen, but sort of the moment you've had a bug introduced into a code base from a subcontractor and get called out, called on it from a customer, that's that's sort of a, a horrible experience. And so, I mean, that's why you build in some of this time to deal with all this stuff. Because uh, and uh, all of it depends on if you haven't, if you've been on the project for a while and you're bringing on somebody that's new. I mean, there's ramp up time. If it's somebody that's less experienced then uh, there's more mentoring and code review and stuff like that. So, I don't know. Subcontracting is an an entire discussion upon itself. Yeah, and we've actually had an episode on it. So, yeah. I'm I'm trying to think back to things that I ran into when I was new, and it's it's been long enough to where I don't remember specifics. So, just the two quick bullet points that I thought of when the topic came up was, one, that marketing is way more important than how good you are as a developer, or at least as important as how good you are as a developer. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get all the trolls that say, you need to be good, blah, blah, blah. And you do, but marketing is way more important than forgetting business. Being good is keeping business, but marketing is how you get the business. And the second thing is not everybody pays you on time, which would have been nice to know in the beginning to get... (laughs) Because I was a little loose with my payment policy and... How, how I deal with invoicing clients and 
jobs. If I would have known in the beginning that not everybody treats bills to freelancers as they do bills to like their mortgage company, then uh, I would have done things differently. Yeah, I'll tell you though, if, if you if you hold on to their code, they're pretty motivated to pay you. Yeah, well, like I said, do things differently. So not deliver yeah. stuff unless I've been paid and all that stuff, but. Right. Do you have any other questions that you you can think of? Yeah, I've, I've got a couple more. Um, one, I, I think um, th this happened to me. So a client that I was already engaged with and had probably done three or four uh, months of work with um, came to me and you know told me about the the offshore outfit for you know one fifth your hourly rate. So how? How do you handle that? <laughs> you just get five times as many bugs. <laughs> yeah, I, I well, usually, I, I actually, they usually hear something from me to the effect of, you know, you're, you're welcome to go with them. I understand what you're saying. Not all developers are created equal, and I will be happy to fix it when they're done. And, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, I found that in a lot of cases, the only, the only, um, the only quality point that they're interested in at that point is price. And so I might ask a few leading questions just to make sure that's the case. And then I'm done because it's not worth talking to them. I could go bill that time. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll ask them a few leading questions, you know, who have you talked to? And, um, you, you start talking about, you know, well, what, what kind of quality control do they have? And, and, uh, you know, what, what kind of guarantees are they making on the code and things like that. And they'll start thinking about it and, you know, they, they come around really quick. And, and if they turn the questions around and ask you those questions, then, then you can start answering them and just kind of feel out whether or not, you know, price is really the only point that they're interested in. But the second you figure that out, the second you kind of get the feel that, all they really want is work done for the cheapest possible price. You're going to lose. So, well, that's kind yeah. of how I handled it. I just, I kind of said, I, I, I kind of encouraged them. I said, you know, go ahead. I want you to, I want to make sure that you're getting the value, you know, the, the best value for your, your money. And, um, it, I can sit here and tell you all day long about my negative experiences with places like that. Um, but the fact is, you know, it's just kind of self-serving for me to say that. So, you know, I, I encourage you to uh, to go try it, and they tried it, and then they came back. But I mean, I I, yeah. just, I didn't really know how to handle. It. I didn't know if that was a good way to to do it because they they weren't really um, only price sensitive. You know, they they want, but but obviously, if if somebody comes to them and says, "Oh, we can give you great quality and and all this and all that in, in the same amount of hours," but it ended up not being the same amount of hours, and it was much more you know worse quality. So you know, it, right. it, it was a win for me in the end. But I wondered if they there was a better way I might have handled that. Yeah, the other thing that I've seen is that, you know, you can also explain the actual cost of owner or the what do they call it? The actual cost, cost of ownership or whatever. Total cost of ownership, that's what it is. And basically, you know, explain that there's more to it than just the initial development and that the maintenance costs might come back around and get them later. So, you know, and, and you know, you talk to them about how serious a brand they're building and things like that and what effect having bugs will have and, and stuff like that. But Again, I mean, you know, you, you still have to gauge, you know, how receptive they're being because if they if they aren't um, open to the fact that, you know, you know, a good a good professional is, is more important than a cheap professional, then, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do. So I don't know that there's a better way of doing that. Um, I, one of, the only other thing I've seen done and this this is kind of what happened with one of my clients was that they had an in-house net team and so I was building a product for them and then their in-house team was kind of building the same product at the same time in .NET and so you know the, the point was made pretty quickly that 
you know, basically myself and the subcontractor I had working on that project, um, we moved ahead way more quickly than six full-time guys on their dev team. And, uh, you know, so, so you can say, well, you can engage us both and just see how far we get, you know, see what the differences are. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way of actually saving them from themselves if they've kind of decided that that might be the way they want to go anyway. Okay. We got time for one more question. I don't know how long we were planning on. We usually go an hour. We've been oh, okay. doing this for about 40 minutes. So go ahead. All right. So um, this, this one was probably the one I've run into most often and I still have no idea how to, um, how to capitalize on it. You, know, you get a lot of requests for, Hey, here's some idea I have. And, um, how, how much do you charge per hour? And I, I, you know, most people, I think when they're in that, at least, well, maybe they, maybe they're too naive or don't know enough, but they, when I tell them what my hourly rate is, well, that's kind of the last I'll hear from them. So <laughs> I, I wonder like how, how can you, um, divert that question of hourly rate into, into value without being too kind of salesman-y, you know, cause it feels kind of weird to say, well, I'm not going to really answer your question, but I'll tell you something else. Right. What do you guys think, Jeff, Eric? I'm at a point where I just rattle off my hourly rates. And, uh, I, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. I mean, I, I don't know. I could probably do a little more education in what it costs to build a, a project or something like that or build an application or whatever. But, I mean, I, I just throw out my hourly rate. And if they're shocked and disbelief and... They want to move on. That's fine. I mean, they'll ask another person, and two or three people down the road, they'll figure out that yeah, this isn't this isn't a five dollar an hour guy I can find on Craigslist. This is a real job. So it's the similar, I guess, similar to the last question. This guy is much cheaper, but I don't, so I don't know. I just I just pass out my hourly rate at this point. But uh, yeah. Um, let's see. I've done in the past. I used to have kind of like example like plans or whatever, where I'd say like. Uh, this plan is 10 hours. It's for X dollars. This plan is for 20 hours and kind of sell time in chunks like that. And mm -hmm. if anyone can do basic division, they could figure out what my hourly rate was pretty easily. Um, and kind of like Jeff, like if they would like, okay, I they couldn't pick a specific plan or they didn't know how much hours, they'd be like, okay, how much is it for an hour of your time? And I would tell them, you know, this is what my rate is. Uh, the nice thing is the people who were like shocked by it are probably kind of like what we we're talking about earlier. They're they're looking for price and they're shopping for the best deal they can get. And so that the kind of work I do, that's not the best client for me. Like we're not going to be a good fit, even if I was in their budget range. Um, on the other hand, though, sometimes I won't tell them the hourly rate and I'll be like, well, it depends on your project because unlike a lot of other people, I actually do fix bid projects for stuff that's kind of cookie cutter where there's not a lot of scope creep that's going to be in the project. And so I might say like, look, based on what you told me, we might do a fixed bid on this. And then that way hourly rate doesn't matter and you have a solid number you can budget with. So, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it depends. I mean, you can try to be flexible with them and you obviously have to fill it out based on their communication. Um, a good thing to do is to always like wait, you know, try to collect more details, see where they're coming from, like get as much information from them as you can. And that might tell you like, okay, they're going to be price sensitive. You might try to fix bid or they're, they're wanting the very cheapest provider possible. You can just tell them your rate and they'll probably go away. You know, mm -hmm. the thing is you don't need every single client to, you know, book with you. Yeah. I've approached, uh, I've approached things a couple of different ways. 
Um, I've, I've tried just basically, you know, emailing them back and asking them for details and just, you know, not mentioning anything about the rate. And, and a lot of times that works okay. Um, I've also told people that I don't give my rate out over email, but I need to talk about the project first. And so then we'll line up a Skype call and it seems like that works okay. I haven't found one that really works any better or worse than the others as far as being able to close it or not or give them sticker shock. Um, you know, I have actually just emailed them and said, this is the hourly rate that I do. Most of the time, though, I email them back and say something to the effect of, well, you know, I, I kind of, it's kind of a range depending on, you know, your budget and, you know, what your expectations are and how big the project is and stuff like that. Um, and, and that kind of sets the stage for them to really think about, okay, well, you know, what, what am I really after here? And, you know, what are my constraints on this project? And then um, I'll usually also explain, you know, I typically provide these types of services. And so I'll explain that I can set up their server for them and I can, um, you know, I do TDD or I do testing and make sure that their application works and stuff like that. And, and just explain, you know, um, I provide these high quality uh, services, you know, for high quality code. And so, you know, you, you know, let, let's talk so that I can understand where you're at and what kind of, you know, how we can kind of make your expectation of cost and my expectation of getting paid match up. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to fixed bids. I used to be, but it just, you know, again, it just depends. So then we can sit down and talk and say, okay, well, this seems like a reasonable fee for this amount of work. And, and that could be hourly, you know, reasonable fee for an hour's worth of work or a reasonable fee for this chunk of work. Well, so how do you decide, I mean, do you have a cutoff or do you, got, you guys have a cutoff for how big of a project you'll do fixed bid? I've done like maybe up to 10 or 15 hours and that's kind of my max. Otherwise, outside of that range, I feel like you know, any number of little things can go wrong and, and start, um, you know, start spiraling to where you're, uh, you know, eating a ton of hours mm -hmm. so do you have a max i'd say i don't think i have a cutoff as far as that i mean i obviously like if it's a big project like that's going to be you can't estimate a year ahead of time but most of my projects have been two to three week um type things whether it's fixed or hourly and they're set up where it's a quick iteration and then that's kind of the finish of the project and then we renew it and do another iteration and so I would, I, if I wanted to fix bid, I'd fix bid like one of those two or three week things. The main component for me for a fixed bid is have I done something like this before? Do I have existing code I can use? You know, do, do I feel like it's going to move both the negotiation and the project faster by just doing a fixed bid on this and just getting to work versus doing an hourly? You know, and it, that brings in like, is the client sensitive to the hourly price, or are they sensitive to the total cost, or you know, how much risk are they trying to put on me? Yeah, I'm I'm along the same lines as Eric. I'll I'll do up to maybe a month or two at the very longest. But again, I mean, it's got to be a very well defined set of um, of things that they need done, and things that I'm comfortable estimating within that margin of error. Um, if, if it is somewhat unknown, then I just raise the, the estimation uh, or the fixed bid and I just explain to them, look, there are some unknowns here. So I'm, I'm hedging a little bit, you know, if they come back and they say, well, that doesn't seem in line with, you know, the pricing that we, we think we're looking at. And, uh, it's, you know, but usually I'm asking enough leading questions about where they want to go, what features they want, how, you know, how they want it done. And I can do a little bit of research and really put it together. 
but uh, yeah, um, I don't know that I would I would uh, do a fixed bid on a project that was going to last more than a month or two. Actually, thinking about it, um, what you said, Chuck, about the unknowns. One of my recent fixed bids, it was kind of where all of it was cookie cutter, except for there was one unknown, and it was a, a techno- technological unknown. In that, I think I can solve it this way. If I can't, I can solve it another way. It'll just be harder and not as not as good of a solution. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think back. I think almost all my fixed bids have only had one or two unknowns. When you start getting multiple unknowns in the project, whether it's you know personnel or technical. I think that's kind of where you're going to have to get pushed to the hourly because you can kind of budget and put some buffer in for one, but two, three, four, five, like that's that's a lot of buffering you're going to have to do. And that's where you get the, you know, you say it's going to cost a million dollars and it ends up taking $5 million of work. Right. But at the same time, um, on, on, or on the other hand, I guess I should say, um, sometimes you have a lot of those unknowns and so you buffer the bid and you basically put your bid way outside of the range that they're expecting or getting from other people. Well, how do you so. deal with the unknowns of, um, you know, like typical agile project management is meant to, at least in part, to deal with where, um, you know, you show them something and they see it and they're like, oh, yeah, but this would be cool. Or do you just say, well, that's out of scope and we have to renegotiate that? Yep. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I'll I'll say that's out of the original scope, and let's note it down. And then near the end, depending on how the project went, especially with like the unknown factors, like if there's, because I keep my own internal hourly budget. If there's some time in there, I can take on some of those smaller stuff, like as bonus features for them, to really please the client. But most of the time, it's. I mean, when you do fixed bid, almost everything's out of scope if you haven't talked about it. Right. Though sometimes the other thing that can happen is um, one of the things that they realize they want different supersedes something in the contract. And so in a lot of cases, I, I won't even renegotiate it. I'll just basically say, look, you know, um, I mean, you know, outside of just getting like some kind of, you know, email agreement that basically says, you know, I'm going to do this instead of that. And they basically mail back and say, that's OK, or get the email from them that says, Hi, I'd like you to do this instead of that. And then I email back and, and acknowledge. And uh, but, mm-hmm. but you have to have a really good working relationship with the client to do things like that because ultimately your contract says you are going to do the other thing. And so um, if, if you have any inkling that that might come back around and they might, you know, force you to build that other feature in because it's in the project and they paid you for it, then get an addendum to the contract. But yeah, in I mean, most, cases, to- most cases, people are, are good people. They're they're pretty laid back. They just want what they want, and they want to pay for it, and so it's not an issue. And I mean, you'll have to talk to an attorney, but I'm pretty sure if you send an email saying, we'd like to amend this contract, you know, whatever, this changes to this, this gets taken out, please confirm that you agree to these changes and they reply over email, that's a legally binding addendum. It's because it's emails, uh, you know, business communication, it's like, you know, basically written down, but you have to have a confirmation on it. But once again, check of an attorney, all that jazz. Yeah, and in some cases, in for example, in a lot of the contracts that I either use or sign, it says that any addendum to the contract has to be sent certified mail, return receipt requested, requested, blah 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 blah. And so you know, and then so it just it also depends on how your contract is written as to whether or not that is actually a binding addendum to the contract, because some yeah. of them preclude that. So just be aware. 
And again, talk to your attorney. Gotcha. Um, any other questions? I think we have time for one more before we have to do picks. I, I'm all, I, I think I've, I'm good, but I, I, I wouldn't mind hearing maybe a little bit more from you guys' perspective of what did, what did you kind of wish you knew if you remember I, I, I wish I had known at the time that I could get more than $65 an hour when I started because that's, that's where I started. Um, it worked out okay because, I mean, the client did pay me and stuff, but, you know, I'd just been laid off and I thought I thought that was a lot of money. And it, it turned out, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot of money until you actually have to pay for all the things that you didn't realize you had to pay for. So I, I, um, build, I build quite a bit more than that now. I'll say for me, I kind of want to go off of Jeff's that he mentioned earlier about how marketing's important. But not just marketing, but follow-up. I mean, you can have a, someone contact you wanting work, but if you don't follow up with them, you know, whether they drop the ball or you drop the ball, you're not going to win it. And I've, I think I, I, at one point I realized that and started following up a lot better. And I was actually following up with one guy for, I think, nine months. And then I finally won the contract. And that contract has been, or was my largest dollar value and my largest hourly rate value in what the past five years that I've been working. So following oh, wow. up and having a system for following up is hugely important. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes quite a bit of sense. All right. Well, if there aren't any other uh, things, unless Jeff wants to add anything to what he said, we'll just get to the picks. No, go ahead and do picks. All right. Um, Eric, why don't you start us off with picks? Okay. So I got two today. Um, two blog posts. One is from a list apart. It's called Habit Fields. Um, it's an article that kind of talks about, it starts off talking about memory, but it talks about how the kind of, I guess, the activities that you do in certain places and with certain objects kind of gets ingrained in your memory. And kind of the practical aspect of it is if you have a, a home office that you work at that has a laptop and all that, when you sit down to that, you're probably going to work on productive things there versus if you're downstairs in an easy chair the easy chair is probably going to make you want to watch tv or read a book and it talks about how you have to be careful because if you mix those two um you get kind of screwed up so if you start reading on your computer you might not sit down and be as productive as you would if you only read in the easy chair so it's it's an interesting article. It's kind of something to think about, especially with you know all the smartphones and the tablets out now, and kind of actually separating this device is for this actual task, this device is for this other task. Um, and then uh, this one's actually pretty relevant to our discussion. We're talking about pricing. Um, it's a blog post from the Eighth White blog. It's called Fixed Feature. Um, it's kind of a way of pricing and bidding projects, but it's a mix between time and materials hourly stuff and actually fixed bid. It's a short article. It's an interesting read. Um, kind of the summary is instead of doing a fixed bid like this project is X dollars or an hourly where this project takes X many hours at this rate, they actually do a fixed bid for each feature. So authentication is X dollars. Um, you know, having a homepage that does this other thing is Y dollars. And then it kind of lets the client pick what features they want and they kind of build their own, uh, build their own project right off of that. So it's a, it's a short post. It's an interesting read. I think they have, yeah, they have a white paper that talks about it a little bit. So it's, it's something to think about. I mean, depending on how the client wants to proceed and what their level of risk, this might be something you can also try out if hourly is not going to work for you and a fixed bid won't work for you either. Yeah, I like that. I like that approach. I think when I was, uh, it was at Ruby WebConf a couple of years ago, um, we had kind of a little discussion about freelancing and one of the guys did that. 
he would estimate chunks of work at fixed bids so they could just buy the pieces they want wanted. Yeah, um, I've kind of done that where I would say like client here's one here's option A at X price. Here's option B, which has a couple extra features at a little bit more, and then option C. But I've never actually broken it out into features. I'd always try to figure out like what the minimum features they'd need, and that's kind of the base price, and then they can add on to that. But it was really restrictive, and they only had like three or four different choices. Right. Uh, Jeff, what are your picks? I sadly don't have any picks today. All right. You can fire um, me. I'll go, nah, I like you. All right, um, I'll do some picks. Um, my first pick is uh, Radio Shack, and the reason is is that my uh, my washer uh, it's about two or three years old. It started randomly beeping, and so we went and looked, and every time it would randomly beep, the temperature would change on the washer. And uh, so basically, we figured out that the the little button on the the temperature selector was shorting. And so um, I called Frigidaire, because it's a Frigidaire washer, and it wasn't under warranty anymore, which I wasn't shocked. I mean, it was, it's almost three years old. So um, I wound up uh, opening it up and just looking to see what was there. And it had this little dinky switch on it. And so um, I went down to Radio Shack to see if they had any switches of about that size, and they did. So I wound up buying the switch, buying a soldering iron, because I don't know where my soldering iron went. Um, and then some uh, solder braid and just pulled the old switch off, put the new switch on. Um, the whole operation cost me about 20 bucks, and, you know, I didn't have to pay anybody to come out and fix my washer. So kind of kind of cool, kind of fun. Um, I hadn't fixed anything like that in a while. So anyway, I thought it was cool. Um, appliance my, hacking. What was that? Sorry, I said appliance hacking. Yeah, well, appliance repair anyway. So it works now. I forgot to put one of the, the button things back in, but my wife never uses the reset or cancel or whatever that button is. So, But yeah, yeah, appliance hacking, I guess you could call it. Um, but super handy. Our TV actually went out too because we had the power co- go off and then come back on, and I think it surged and burned out the, the power supply in it. But um, apparently those ones, the power supply is just uh, one of the circuit boards in there. So worst case scenario, you just pull the old circuit board out, you order a new one for 50 or 100 bucks or something and put it in there. So, um, yeah, I'll be doing that when I get home. My wife went out and bought a new TV because she can't live without the TV. So um, my other pick is uh, I, I went out and uh, this is actually something that um, Evan's picked on this show before. But uh, when I was getting ready to do these shows, my headphones, I have I have some earbuds and they have a microphone on them and they just they, they kind of fell apart on me so uh, I went out to Best Buy and I bought the the LG Tone headphones the the Bluetooth headphones and the Halo one yeah the, the one that hangs over your neck and uh, that's what I'm talking on right now I've been really happy with it um, I've been wanting Bluetooth headphones for a while because my iPod uh, headphone jack is actually dying and so I actually have to sit there and have my thumb on the the part that plugs into the um, the headphone jack, the little what do you call those things, the little connector. Anyway, the jack. I have to put yeah, I have to push it to one side so that it'll connect so that I can get uh, sound on both sides. And if I have it in my pocket and I'm walking around, then it actually like skips from one ear to the other. So it'll be like left ear, right ear, left ear, and then I won't hear anything for a second. And then 
anyway, so it, it's really obnoxious. So I'm, I'm hoping the Bluetooth headphones will solve that problem as well. But it was also nice when uh, I was at the hotel. Um, I was listening to an audiobook on my iPad, and uh, I just left the iPad on the bed, got up, brushed my teeth, you know, went to the bathroom, did all these stuff that I do before I go to bed, and then, you know, went and laid back down, and I didn't have to unplug or anything because I'm used to being tethered to that thing, you know, by like two feet of headphone cable. So anyway, those are my picks. Super happy with, with them. Uh, Sammy, do you have some picks for us? I have one. Um, so back in uh, August 2011, at uh, I lost my job and, uh, at, and I went to Lone Star Ruby Conference uh, the next week. And I got lucky enough somehow, I, I guess from knowing Evan on Twitter, um, I, I ended up having dinner with him, Avdi Grimm, and Jim Light, who was the president of Lone Star Ruby Foundation. Mm-hmm. And the conversation there was kind of what got me thinking, oh my gosh, I could I could probably do this whole freelancing thing. Um, and, and then, you know, a- afterwards I followed up a lot with Evan and... Um, he he helped me get my first client, and he's kind of talked me through a lot of uh, situations. So um, Evan Light's my pick because if I hadn't met him when I did, uh, you know, I'd probably have another job right now. Yeah, the funny story with Evan, and I know it's come up on the show before, but uh, he was part of that little discussion about freelancing at uh, Ruby Web Conference, and it turned out that that was like a week before I got laid off in in 2010. So yeah. And so he, wait, are you saying that Evan made both you guys lose your jobs? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's only a light jinx. Anyway, so, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think Sammy said that he, he was talking to him after after he lost his job. So Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I had been considering it, but I, I never really thought it was possible until after after all that. So Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. He's helped a lot of people. I think if, if you're going freelance, then uh, uh, he, I think he likes talking to people about it and helping to make that transition. So, yeah, definitely a good guy. Happy to have him on the show. So are you from Texas then? I am. I, I mean, I was originally born in Oklahoma, but um, I've lived in Texas since I was 10. I'm 33 now. I will be uh-huh. next week. Next so I've been week. here a while. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. So what part of Texas are you in? I'm in Houston. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap the show up. Um, thanks for coming, Sammy. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's, it's always nice to get the perspective from somebody that's a little newer at this than we are. Um, anyway, um, I don't think we have any announcements, so we'll just wrap up and we'll, we'll talk to everybody next week take care all right guys thanks again yeah no problem